Welcome back to Anti-Social Studies. Before we get started on today's episode, which I'm really excited about, I just want to make another friendly reminder about Patreon. If you really love the episodes that I'm making and you really love the content that I put up on my website, i.e., free lesson plans, uh, then please consider going and joining my Patreon. It's a really great way to show your support, and it's also a great way to get a lot of extra mini episodes that I put out every week or two. For example, in conjunction with this next episode all about the women's rights movement, I'm doing a new little mini episode all about the Equal Rights Amendment that just got maybe ratified in Virginia a few weeks ago. Spoiler, probably not, but we'll see. Anyway, if you like what I'm doing, please go check out Patreon. Okay, Back to today's episode. All right. The ladies of American history have been dancing on the edges of our narrative for about 200 years. I think it's about time we gave them an episode of their own. Let's just get right to it. Today's episode is all about the women's era, or well-behaved women seldom make it on this podcast. We're going to focus on the century or so leading up to 1920, generally considered the apex of the women's rights movement. What happened in the 19th century that made women all of a sudden collectively decide to crush the patriarchy? How did women get the right to vote, and why did it take so long? And isn't it awkward that arguably the women's movement's next greatest achievement, prohibition, was also an enormous failure? This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. The Movement Begins. Now, I want to get this out of the way early. Obviously, not all women were part of the women's rights movement. And the women's rights movement included men, too, right? Like, poorer women often didn't have the luxury of being activists because they were too busy, you know, trying to feed their family. And many women in the 19th century believed that the gendered division of labor was an important aspect of moral, i.e. Christian, society. But today, I want to focus on the poorly behaved women of bumper sticker lore. All right. If you listen to season one of this podcast, or you've been even slightly paying attention over the last 8,000 years, men have been somewhat dominating the historical narrative. And the same is true in U.S. history. Like, there have been 57 women who have served in the U.S. Senate, and there have been 207 men named John who have served in the U.S. Senate. That's four times as many Johns. For most of history, women have been pushed into the background. They raise the children, run the home, support their husband, and are the only ones who know how to load the dishwasher the right way. There have been women pushing back against this division of labor for millennia. Like, oh, hey, every woman I talked about in season one. But there was never anything close to the tidal wave of hormone-fueled lady power that swept across the Western world in the middle of the 19th century. Why now? Well, the larger context is the Enlightenment and the era of revolutions. As men like John Locke, Voltaire, and Thomas Jefferson wrote about ideas like natural rights, liberty, and democracy, some women came across these ideas and thought, oh, this is hilarious. First of all, men, you should have never taught us how to read. That was your first mistake. Because men were writing insanely hypocritical things in the 18th century. Like, I don't know, a slave owner writing all men are created equal? Or French revolutionaries writing about resistance to oppression while telling women to go back home and make them a baguette sandwich? Educated women began internalizing the basic ideas of the Enlightenment and applying them to their own situation. And we'll come back to that idea in a second. Beyond the Enlightenment, the American Revolution itself was a shockwave for the soon-to-be women's movement. It provided a clear opportunity for a frank discussion about rights and who would get to be a part of the new nation. Abigail Adams famously wrote to her husband asking that the founding fathers remember the ladies. As she put it, quote, Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. 
If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Basically, she's arguing that if the new United States doesn't give women a voice, then they will be no better than King George. John Adams replied, quote, I cannot but laugh. <laughs> oh my God. Abigail crafted a beautiful argument based on enlightenment ideology and her husband is like, ha, that's funny, honey. Grab me a beer, will you? So in the early United States, women were denied most of their legal rights. They couldn't vote, own property, keep their own wages, or even have custody over their children. Great. Thanks, guys. However, a tiny sliver of hope developed during the revolution, and that was the belief that a successful republic would require an ethical and educated citizenry. The founders recognized that their new democratic experiment would only work if voting men were not, you know, complete idiots. And who was responsible for raising future voters? Women! Women were glorified in the new United States under the banner of Republican motherhood. Just like the Aztecs believed strong women would produce strong warriors, Americans believed that educated women would produce educated voters. Wow, men really do not understand pregnancy. But still, the first American female academies were founded in the 1790s. So for the first half of the 19th century, some women were becoming educated, although mostly for the purpose of being appealing wives and successful mothers, but baby steps. And baby steps really is the key. Women had to move slowly and methodically. Historically, if women were too loud or moved too quickly, they were at best called hysterical and ignored, and at worst, burned at the stake. But over time, American women slowly expanded their sphere of influence to gain more power. They convinced men to let them get an education, but just so they can raise their children better. Then some women get involved in charity, but only when it relates to lady stuff, like children and orphans and the less fortunate. Like I mentioned earlier in the season, middle and upper class women made up a large part of the abolitionist movement. Often they framed their arguments against slavery through the lens of domestic issues, concern for enslaved children, or a somewhat patronizing discussion about enslaved people like they were all slightly childlike and thus needing our protection. Through this activism, women were not just finding meaning for themselves, they were also developing important connections and political experience. But the real you-know-what hit the fan in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention. Over two days in upstate New York, 300 women and men got together to fire the opening salvo in a women's revolution that will last over a century. I mean, let me know when it ends, right? Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the event after being excluded from a world anti-slavery convention in London. They both met up at the bar, I imagine, talked about how messed up it was that a convention to end the horrible oppression that is slavery wouldn't allow women to participate, and then they vowed to hold a women's rights convention to protest this historic oppression of women. The document that the Seneca Falls Convention created, the Declaration of Sentiments, is, oh, it's a masterclass in political parody. Let me read you the first paragraph and see if it sounds familiar. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a course. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Oh my God, I love it so much. It's so badass. So the Seneca Falls Convention passed 11 resolutions relating to women's equality, but the most controversial was the ninth resolution to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. This is the birth of the women's suffrage movement, and it was not without controversy. 
That resolution led many to withdraw their support from the movement, thinking it was too extreme to ask for women's right to vote. The resolution passed thanks to speeches by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and African-American Frederick Douglass. Even those who supported it were often pretty shady about it. Like Horace Greeley, known for his utopian views, explained that sincere Republicans couldn't refuse, quote, the demand of women to an equal participation with men in political rights, even though it was, in his words, quote, an unwise and mistaken demand. Cool. Thanks, Horace. The goals of 1848 were quickly overshadowed by the lead-up to the Civil War and the fight over slavery, and most women's rights activists believed that it was appropriate that enslaved people should be freed from bondage before the nation could focus on expanding voting rights. Despite this, the progress made for African-American men after the Civil War did not include their female allies and counterparts. So the 14th Amendment, in my opinion, the most important sentence of our entire Constitution, established equal protection of the laws for all persons born or naturalized in the United States— That sounds great, right? Sure. Except that the 14th Amendment also introduced the word male into the Constitution for the first time. Section 2 of the amendment specifically clarifies that the voting population is, quote, male citizens. Women's rights leaders were disappointed. Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, quote, if that word male be inserted, it will take us a century at least to get it out. And I mean, considering that 150 years later, we still don't have a constitutional amendment guaranteeing equal rights for men and women? She wasn't wrong. Susan B. Anthony wanted to test out this new 14th Amendment. In 1872, she cast a ballot in the presidential election in New York, citing her citizenship under the 14th Amendment. She was arrested, tried, and convicted, and fined $100, which she refused to pay. A related ruling in the Supreme Court declared that while women may be citizens, all citizens were not necessarily voters. Basically, women were treated like children. A 10-year-old is a citizen, but that doesn't mean they get to vote for president. Cool, said the 10-year-old. I'll just wait eight years until I'm not a woman anymore. But there was still hope. The 15th Amendment was set to make it even more clear who could vote. But when all was said and done, the amendment declared that the right to vote could not be denied on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. How hard would it have been for them to add one more comma and throw in, like, or sex? Was ink really that expensive? This amendment specifically led to a split in the growing suffrage movement. Some, like Lucy Stone, supported the amendment and believed it was still a step in the right direction for women, but others, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, split with the mainstream movement. They wanted to move faster. Act 2. Progressive Women You're like, didn't we just have a whole episode about the progressive era? Why do we need to talk about it again? Well, for one, be quiet, and two, the progressive era cannot and will not be contained. While many progressive era activists and muckrakers across all aspects of the movement were women, like I see you, Ida Tarbell, there was a whole branch of the progressive movement that was all about women's suffrage. But before we get into the 20th century, the last push of the suffrage movement, we need to talk about its founding mother, the person you kind of know, but like not really, the lady on the coin herself, Susan B. Anthony. Born in 1820 into a Massachusetts family that fought in the American Revolution, she was raised in the Quaker faith that believed everyone was equal under God. Side note, so many prominent 19th century activists, especially abolitionists, were Quakers because of their radical ideas about equality, morality, and community. Anthony had seven siblings, most of whom also became social activists. 
So Susan B. Anthony taught before becoming involved in the abolition movement alongside family friends William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. She became a public speaker in a time when many thought it was improper for women to give speeches in public. And she didn't attend the Seneca Falls Convention, although her mother and sister did. So it wouldn't be until 1851 that she met her ride-or-die suffrage BFF, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I mean, it's really impossible to talk about Susan B. Anthony without also talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They really should be two sides of the dollar coin, but whatever. Stanton, the primary author of the Declaration of Sentiments, was the philosopher of the suffrage movement, and Susan B. Anthony was the voice. This is especially helpful because Anthony never married, dedicating her life to the cause, while Stanton was also raising seven children. Susan B. Anthony traveled the country sharing Elizabeth Cady Stanton's and her own views on women's equality, often risking arrest to do so. They co-founded the American Equal Rights Association and used their newspaper, The Revolution, to spread the message, with money from Anthony's lectures funding the movement. One of the most famous examples of Anthony voicing Stanton's philosophies was at a protest of the 1876 Centennial Celebration. She gave a speech written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton called The Declaration of Rights, in which she called for, quote, men, their rights, and nothing more, women, their rights, and nothing less. Anthony helped to reunify the suffrage movement after its division over the 15th Amendment. She merged the major organizations into the National American Women's Suffrage Association, leading the group until 1900. Over time, the two women drifted apart politically. Anthony joined forces with more conservative groups like the Temperance Movement to prohibit alcohol, while Stanton remained fairly radical. For example, Stanton published the Woman's Bible to much controversy. She argued for a secular state and urged women to recognize how traditional theology has oppressed women. But they were still BFFs in the end. They co-wrote a three-volume history of women's suffrage in 1885 to document all of the individual and local activism that had been done so far in the movement. But there was obviously a lot more to be done. Like, maybe a history of the movement was slightly premature? I mean, they still couldn't vote, right? Okay, so Seneca Falls and the debate over the post-Civil War amendments kicked women's activists into high gear. A new generation of college-educated independent women began popping up in urban areas. Remember that cities themselves were growing at the same time the movement was. Historians have called this the new woman, someone wanting to use her education for more than just finding a husband and teaching her sons. And she found a ton of opportunities to flex her activist muscle in the era of industrialization. By the second half of the 19th century, cities, factories, and immigration were all on the rise, and so was poverty, inequality, and mistreatment of workers. Highly intelligent women developed independence thanks to higher education and or moving away from their families to the big city for the first time, and they went to work caring for the mistreated people of the Gilded Age. You know what comes next? The Progressive Era! Notice, most of the aspects of the Progressive Era were still technically within the woman's sphere, often focused on orphans, child laborers, the poor, and others who needed a woman's perceived nurturing instinct. A great example of this would be Jane Addams. Her Hull House in Chicago was a place for poor people, many of them immigrants, to go and learn basic skills all the way up to experience the arts and literature— Adams brought in educated women to share their knowledge in this community center, teaching things from reading and writing, English language classes, cooking, and acculturation classes for new immigrants. Over time, her vision expanded, and they added a kindergarten, a daycare for working mothers, and a job placement bureau. 
Jane Addams would go on to be a leader in the progressive era movement against child labor, and she helped establish a school of social work at the University of Chicago. Social work would become an important industry for women to gain higher education, expertise, and legitimacy through the so-called women's sphere. Showing the continuing connection between women's rights and other minority groups, Jane Addams was also a founding member of the NAACP. Side note, Adams became a global peace advocate during and after World War I, eventually becoming the first American woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Good work, Jane. Now, before we get back to industrialization in the Progressive Era, I want to mention that even though there was a lot of overlap between the women's rights and the early civil rights movements from abolition on, it really wasn't that simple. Like I mentioned earlier, the movement split over the 15th Amendment and frustration among some white women that black men would be allowed to vote before they could. But as the possibility of women's suffrage became a political reality, some suffragettes found themselves courting the support of those in power who were at the same time actively oppressing black citizens. I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton herself was a racist who believed it was degrading to allow black men the right to vote before white women. So although black and white women had been often on the same side of history, especially during the abolition movement, many white suffragettes turned on their black counterparts to gain political favor with white male elites. Anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells expressed her frustration that many activists were sacrificing the lives of African Americans to further their own political cause. In addition, outspoken activists like Wells, who gave speeches and pushed for protest against the mistreatment of black people, were often shunned from the larger women's rights movement so they wouldn't lose the support of racist politicians. Really, this comes back to nuance, and nuance is important. So just like it's critical to note that suffragettes weren't all friends to other oppressed Americans, it's important to also point out that industrialization wasn't necessarily all good for the women's movement. Before industrialization, women were often valued as artisans and laborers in the domestic sphere. They wove textiles, sewed clothes for the family, and did a lot of the physical labor of keeping up a home. Now, I'm not here to argue against my dishwasher or the fact that I can go get basically anything I don't need at Target, but the prevalence of manufactured goods and home appliances over time made a lot of a woman's work obsolete. A new cult of domesticity arose as advertising companies glorified the beautiful housewife who benefited from newfangled inventions and modernity. Women, especially middle-class women, lost a lot of their informal power as industrialization outsourced their daily work. But overall, the rise of dense population centers, increasing access to information, and jobs outside the home led to new women who found a modern world with more opportunity. By the turn of the century, women had gained the right to own property, control their own wages, and enter into contracts on their own. By 1900, at least 5 million women were working for wages, mostly in domestic industries like textile factories, education, and other social work. But this new generation of women with money in their pockets and some political experience would give the movement the final push it needed to win the vote. And now, I would like to pull a Parks and Rec and give the Woman of the Year Award to Ron Swanson. And by Ron Swanson, I mean, of course, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes! That's like four episodes in a row. I wonder if I can work Teddy Roosevelt into every episode for the rest of this season. Who am I kidding? Of course I can. Let's go. So, okay, obviously the heroes of the women's rights movement are the women of the women's rights movement. But I do want to bring up Teddy to highlight a few things. Number one, the manliest of all manly men presidents was also way into gender equality. He would have been at the Women's March with a shirt that said, this is what a feminist looks like. 
Number two, women had become a strong enough political force before they even got the right to vote that high-level politicians like Teddy had to take them seriously. That's impressive. And three, progress doesn't occur in a vacuum. Social change requires people in positions of privilege, i.e. the very white, very male president of the United States, to be an ally and make room for others. Just saying. So let me just walk you through my Teddy Roosevelt was a feminist pitch, and then we'll get back to talking about actual women. As a senior at Harvard, he wrote his thesis advocating for equal rights for women, including an argument that women shouldn't change their names when they get married. Boom. As a New York state representative, he introduced a bill to allow corporal punishment for men who beat their wives, eye for an eye type justice. As police commissioner, he hired women in executive positions around the New York City Police Department. Boom. When he's running for president again in 1912, he openly advocated for women's suffrage. His platform included a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage a year before the National American Women's Suffrage Association started seriously pushing for a constitutional amendment. Up to that point, they had been focusing mostly on changing state laws, so Teddy was ahead of them. Teddy's nomination for the Bull Moose Party was officially seconded by Jane Addams, making her the first woman to ever nominate a president. Side note, she received a ton of backlash for this. For example, the former Harvard president called it, quote, an exceedingly bad taste because a woman has no place in a political convention. Um, Teddy invited her. I think she's fine. Even after Teddy lost the election in 1912, he testified in front of Congress on behalf of the women's labor movement. He even joined the striking Ladies' Garment Workers Union in Manhattan, bringing attention and reporters to document their movement after the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire two years earlier. And the other two progressive presidents, Taft and Wilson, were both openly opposed to a federal women's suffrage amendment, preferring to leave the decision up to the states. On that note... Teddy campaigned in New York until his home state passed women's suffrage in 1917. Whoa. And three years later, well, spoiler alert. Act three, the vote. In 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed stating, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Yes! It's about time, only 130 years late. But before we get to that, there were women who could vote before 1920. Any guesses what the first state or territory to allow women to vote was? Shout it out. Nope, not California. No, not Massachusetts, damn Puritans. Mississippi? That's not funny. I mean, seriously, they just ratified the 13th Amendment, the one to abolish slavery in 2013. It's not Mississippi. Nope. The first place in the United States where women could vote was... Wyoming? What? Wyoming? They granted women suffrage in 1869, barely beating out Utah for the honor. Although Utah was technically the first place where a woman cast her vote, and it was Sarah Young, the niece of Brigham Young. Good on you, Mormons. Similar to the way marriage equality was passed in many states before the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, 20 states or territories had already allowed women's suffrage. For the record, these are, in order, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, Washington, California, Oregon, Montana, Arizona, Kansas, Alaska, Illinois, North Dakota, Indiana, Nebraska, Michigan, Arkansas, New York, South Dakota, and Oklahoma. Notice anything? 
They're all west of the Appalachian Mountains, except for New York, but they had Teddy. Okay, so why were women allowed to vote in the Wild West? I mean, we could go into a whole narrative about the freedom of the frontier. Remember the gay cowboys from two episodes ago? But it's really more about politics and money. It's always politics and money. A lot of these territories were competing for settlers in the late 1800s, and they thought women's equality would make for some good PR. Also, they were just straight up desperate for women. In Wyoming, there were six adult men for every adult woman, so unless they wanted to become bizarro Utah, they needed to reverse that trend. Finally, and most hilariously, the people in Wyoming didn't actually think the law would pass. The Wyoming legislature was dominated by Democrats under a Republican governor. They figured that he was sure to veto the bill, making him look bad, and maybe bringing more women to the Democratic Party. Remember that in the late 1800s, the Republicans are still the party of Lincoln. They're of abolition and slaves' voting rights. So most women's rights activists tended to vote Republican. But the Republican governor didn't veto it. Thousands of women came to the territory, and they all voted... Oh, still Republican. Uh, didn't work for the Democrats. Damn it, ladies, and your ability to see through an obvious political plot. So a little while later, the Democrats tried to repeal the law, but the Republican governor did veto this one. They even had the two-thirds votes in the House to override the veto, trying so hard to undo women's suffrage, but the move fell one vote short in the Senate. So women earned the right to vote in Wyoming by the skin of their teeth. And I mean, even though this isn't quite the heroic story of men standing up for equal rights as we would like, it does seem that they grew to like women voters over time. Because about 20 years later, in 1890, Wyoming was up for statehood. The U.S. Congress said they would accept the new state as long as they rescinded the right of women to vote. But the Democratic Wyoming legislature stood up for its women, sending back a telegram that read, quote, we will remain out of the union 100 years rather than come in without the women. Congress backed down and Wyoming and its ladies became the 44th state. So these frontiersmen and cowboys, everyone who had not died of dysentery on the Oregon Trail, were the best hope for the women's suffrage movement. Jeanette Rankin from Montana became the first woman elected to Congress in 1916, four years before women could vote nationwide. And side note, Rankin's first vote in Congress was over whether or not to enter World War I, no pressure. As a lifelong pacifist, she held to her views and was the only member of Congress to vote against the war, even though she was aware that this might do damage to the suffrage movement. Because, you know, who wants people to vote who don't like war? That's insane. So by the high point of the progressive era, women in about half of the states could vote. And with the old guard of the movement gone, the main push for a constitutional amendment was led by Carrie Chapman Catt. She closely coordinated state suffragette efforts with her appeals to the federal government, and she saw an opportunity to capitalize on World War I. We'll talk more about the war next episode, but basically most of the white men were away and President Wilson was at home preaching ideas like freedom, democracy, and self-determination for the nations of Europe. Self-determination, you said? Carrie sidles up next to the president, who's now left alone with a bunch of angry women while the men are off at war. Carrie Chapman Catt threw her support to Wilson's re-election campaign, harnessing the political power of the National American Women's Suffrage Association's membership in 1916. And although Wilson didn't openly call for a suffrage amendment, he did speak at the NASA convention during the presidential campaign. So Carrie Chapman Catt felt that it was safest to stick with Wilson and slowly wear him down. But others in the movement were a little restless. 
Alice Paul returned from England in 1910 after helping to organize a militant wing of the suffrage movement. While in England, she had been thrown in jail and submitted to forced feedings after going on a hunger strike in support of women's equality. She worked with NASA for a while, organizing a women's march the day before Wilson's first inauguration that was almost turned into a riot by opponents. The dramatic publicity of the march revived the women's movement for many around the country who had grown used to the slow, state-by-state political slog. Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Catt clashed over methods, similar in many ways to future civil rights leaders. Alice Paul's small, radical National Women's Party went beyond politics. They marched, boycotted, picketed the White House, and practiced civil disobedience. Mind you, this is 15 years before Gandhi's salt march, widely and erroneously considered the beginning of the global civil disobedience philosophy. And I mean, Alice Paul can't take credit for that either. Vietnamese nationalists were practicing peaceful protests against the French military during the age of imperialism. Anyway, just go check out episode 15 from season one if you want to know more about it. So Alice Paul and her followers are most known for a two-year-long peaceful protest in front of the White House. Women, known as the Silent Sentinels, took turns standing vigil holding signs that read things like, Mr. Wilson, how long must women wait for liberty? Sometimes they held banners quoting Wilson himself, quote, We shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments. Oh, hello, irony. At first, these women were tolerated, but eventually they were attacked, arrested, and imprisoned. Alice Paul spent two weeks in solitary confinement where she began a hunger strike. One physician said of Alice Paul, quote, She has a spirit like Joan of Arc, and it is useless to try to change it. She will die, but she will never give up. Many of the women were force-fed through a feeding tube. On November 14, 1917, the head of the prison ordered the guards to brutalize the suffragettes. Known as the Night of Terror, Lucy Burns, Alice Paul's friend and right-hand woman, was chained by her hands to the ceiling and left there all night. Other women were thrown against iron beds, dragged, choked, and beaten. Reports of the mistreatment of these women stirred the conscience of many Americans, while NASA, under Carrie Chapman Catt, was more quietly chipping away at the entrenched political patriarchy. And the dramatic backdrop of a world war that was supposedly being fought for freedom abroad definitely helped. In 1917, the year we entered World War I, Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin organized the Committee on Women's Suffrage. What they came up with would eventually become the 19th Amendment, and Rankin had the honor of opening the first House debate on the subject. She asked her fellow congressmen, all male, quote, How shall we answer their challenge, gentlemen? How shall we explain to them the meaning of democracy if the same Congress that voted for war to make the world safe for democracy refuses to give this small measure of democracy to the women of our country? It would take a few tries for the amendment to pass Congress, but it did in 1919, at which point it was handed to the states. Oh my God, democracy is so slow. Three-fourths of the states had to ratify, and it was close. The battle came down to a six-week debate in Tennessee. The 19th Amendment was ratified thanks to a 24-year-old state legislator named Harry Byrne, who switched from a no to a yes vote after he received a letter from his mother saying, hurrah, and vote for suffrage. The lesson? Y'all, always listen to your mom. Now, before we wrap up, I want to mention that not everyone who opposed the 19th Amendment was necessarily sexist. Like, many were, but others were just acting out of self-interest. Many states' rights advocates saw this as a dangerous precedent for the federal government to pass down what they saw as social legislation. Buckle up, states' rights people. It's going to be a rough 40 years or so. 
business interests were worried that they might have to pay women more now. And there were women who worried that voting equality would endanger their family values and possibly require more of them than they believed they were capable of, like going to war. But one of the loudest groups opposing women's right to vote was the liquor lobby. Because in the background of this suffrage movement was another movement led by women that would reach its apex in the 1920s, the temperance movement. So let's do a quick rewind back to the Gilded Age for a minute. The growth, urbanization, and social changes of the industrial era were shocking to many. The progressive movement grew out of the desire to lessen the suffering of the working class, children, and immigrants. But there was a more conservative wing of the progressive movement who believed they had pinpointed the root of the problem, and it was alcohol. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded in 1874, and it quickly grew to be the largest female organization in the country. They argued that the social ills of the growing cities, homelessness, high crime rates, joblessness, etc., all were caused or made worse by alcohol. For many, the greatest threat to an American woman was not their political or economic inequality. It was husbands who spent their wages at bars or, worse, abused their wife and children. For the most part, the temperance movement ran the same course as suffrage, worked the state legislatures until there's enough support for a constitutional amendment. But there were some who took a more direct approach. Like, Carrie Nation just walked into bars around Kansas with a hatchet, destroying everything she saw. Seriously, 55 years old, she would walk into a bar singing hymns, armed with a hatchet, and smash bottles and bar tables until she was arrested. She started going on lecture tours and selling souvenir hatchets to pay for her legal costs. Oh my gosh, what I wouldn't pay for a souvenir Carrie Nation hatchet. Again, World War I helped the temperance cause because the president was already enacting a wartime restriction on grains and other materials that effectively prohibited alcohol. And showing the political power of the women's movement, even without the right to vote, prohibition was passed before women's suffrage. Now, partly this was because many Southerners saw alcohol use along racial lines. Temperance activists in the South often used fear of drunken black mobs and stereotypes about black men assaulting white women as a way to bring white Southerners to their cause. Rich white people would still be able to find alcohol, but poorer people, especially minorities, would be punished the most. So in 1919, one year before the suffrage amendment, the 18th Amendment was ratified, quote, banning the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. So by 1920, we have people living in cities, progressive activists out there working for social change, women can vote and men can't drink. Ooh, boy. But we have one more layer to the decade leading up to the 1920s that will push it fully into the status of roaring. Kids, we need to talk about World War I. Thanks for listening. For a transcript of today's episode, go to antisocialstudies.org and please go check out my Patreon for current event episodes and bonus material. Thanks. <laughs>